scripture reading today is 1 John 2, 3, and 4. And he himself is the proclamation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You may be seated. I love baseball movies. I have for some time. One of the movies I have enjoyed watching was the movie Eight Men Out. The story of Eight Men Out is the story of the 1919 White Sox who had eight players with gambling. They supposedly threw the games in the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds so that organized crime could reap the benefits. One of those eight players was the great shoeless Joe Jackson. And in the movie, you get to see baseball through the eyes of little boys, primarily a little boy named Pee Wee. And to Pee Wee, shoeless Joe Jackson was a hero. That was his favorite player. And when all the papers started to talk about the gambling charges, and when everything was bad for the team, it broke Pee Wee's heart. And in a very critical scene, you see shoeless Joe Jackson leave the courthouse, supposedly after he has signed his confession. And he's surrounded by all of these baseball reporters who want to ask him questions. And you hear one little voice call out. And the reporters kind of step aside and, and there's Pee Wee. And Pee Wee looks up to his hero. The guy that he thought was so great. And he says the line that everyone remembers from that movie. Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. When that line was said, boy, I mean, the emotions hit me. Uh, a tear came to my eye. A lump came to my throat. I thought, wow, Hollywood got it right. You know, they really captured the moment. Trouble is, that moment never happened. <laughs> That's a myth. There was no little boy named Pee Wee. There was no scene on the courthouse steps. In fact, Willis Joe Jackson did everything he could to help the White Sox win the World Series. He established a hitting mark for highest average that stood for almost 50 years. You know, myths and misconceptions can happen. They happen often, don't they? And many times it happens in the church. Now, we just finished a, a very lengthy study. It started in January. It went through April with seven people who were asking questions. And they wanted to know more about the Bible and want to know more about the church of Christ. But in that study... I found out there was some misconceptions that those seven people had about the church. There were some myths that they believed that was actually not true. 
This morning we shared three of those myths. Tonight we're going to share four. But first, I need to answer two questions. Several people asked me about the church in Kiev. Uh, I, just to refresh your memory, uh, uh, we went in just after the fall of the Soviet Union and we found a group of people who had been meeting for secret, in secret for a very long time. They'd have been worshiping in secret. They practice New Testament Christianity. They practice New Testament baptism. They practice New Testament worship. Now, have we had any more correspondence with that church? Well, yes. Uh, until, up until the war with Russia broke out, we had a lot of uh, uh, correspondence with that congregation. That congregation had been doing quite well. Since the war with Russia, we've had not as many ways to contact them. Uh, we think the church is still doing well there in that uh, one location. Uh, we know that the church in Kiev overall is doing well. Uh, but that one particular congregation, we don't have any recent news to share. Now, another question that came up from this morning, what is that church called today? Because I mentioned to you that when we found them, they were using the name Church of God, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a name that Paul used for the church. They decided on their own because we told them, Church of God is a scriptural name. Now, we don't use that name here in this country because of the connection it has with a denomination. But the Church of God would be a scriptural name. They decided on their own to switch to Church of Christ, Romans 16, 16. So that was their own decision. Now, let's continue tonight looking at these myths and misconceptions. Number four. And this is one I did not expect. This came from one of the seven who is a part-time minister. She said, okay, she's a part-time minister. She said, churches of Christ believe in baptismal regeneration. I told her, no, we do not we believe that the New Testament teaches that baptism is a necessary condition for salvation. That's true. But we reject the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Now, I know what you're saying. What is baptismal regeneration? It's the belief that the physical act of baptism... Now, we had a baptism here today, okay? in that baptistry right there. This is the belief that the physical act of baptism by itself conveys God's saving grace to a sinner without the requirement of faith. Okay? Most people who believe in this doctrine are people who practice infant baptism. They say, okay, the child needs to be baptized, the child is a sinner, and it doesn't matter if the child can't believe or not, it's just a baby, we're going to baptize that baby. That is something that we do not believe in. 
while baptism is the time and baptism is the place in which God promises to forgive sinners and give them the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the physical act of baptism does not save. It's God that makes the difference. God is the one who forgives our sins, who washes our sins away by our obedience to His command. There's nothing special about that water. It's just water. What's special is God's promise to forgive us of our sins if we believe, repent, confess, and are baptized. Baptism is only if it follows a person who believes, who repents, and confesses Jesus as his Lord. To sum up, we believe being immersed into Jesus is the culminating God-appointed condition for receiving salvation from our sins, but only after one believes, repents, and confesses. Myth and misconception number five. This is what I expected. In fact, this came from five of the seven. You are legalistic and narrow-minded. I said, no, I reject that. Here's why I reject it. A legalist, who's a legalist? A legalist, properly understood, is someone who believes that the basis of salvation is all about law-keeping. In other words, if I dot my I's and cross my T's and make sure that everything looks good, I'm okay. That's not the basis of our salvation. We, would, we realize that no matter how perfectly we keep God's commands, I mean, I could keep God's commands perfectly 23 hours, 59 minutes a day. But if I violated his commands one minute a day, hey, I'm not perfect. In fact, the only perfect person who ever walked this earth, they crucified on a cross. Salvation is still a gift from God. God doesn't owe us anything. It's a gift from God himself. Now, while it is 100% God's grace that makes our salvation possible, we also try to be what? Fully obedient to the Lord every day and bring Him glory. Why? Because we love Him. Matthew 5, 16. We do good works to make God look good. The more good works we do, more people can come to know Him because what are we doing? We are magnifying His name. We're making God look good. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We try not to be like King Saul. Now what was the problem with King Saul? 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. King Saul was given a job to do. 
Your job to do, King Saul, is to wipe out the Amalekites. But did he obey? Not really. 1 Samuel 15, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He's defending himself. Hey, I've obeyed. I got on the mission, like I was told to do, of which the Lord sent me, and brought back, what? Brought back. But King Saul, you were told to wipe out. You were told to destroy. He brings back the king. He brings back some animals. Why? Well, verse 21. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. That's why we brought him back. But here's the problem. That wasn't obedience. That wasn't obedience. If I told Tom, Tom, I'm really hankering for some ice cream sandwiches. I would love to have some ice cream. I tell you what, Tom, go down to Walmart, Clayton, you know, go down to Walmart down here and buy me a pack of ice cream sandwiches and I'll give you a thousand dollars. He thinks, you know, Michael, Michael's got, you know, he needs to lose weight. So he gets down there and he doesn't buy me ice cream sandwiches. He buys me some diet ice cream treat, but not ice cream sandwiches. Do I have to pay him the thousand dollars? No, he didn't obey me. He failed to obey me. Here, King Saul fails to obey what does Samuel say to him? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's obedience. God has always wanted us to obey. Obedience for the Christian should be just as natural as breathing in air. Why do we obey? Because we love God. John 14, He who has my commandments and does what keeps them, obeys. It is He who loves me. How can we say we love the Lord and don't obey Him? How can we even say it? Because really we can't. 1 John chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. Luke 6, Jesus said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? You see, obedience... Obedience is pretty important to God. He expects us to obey Him. Unfortunately, so many Christians today are not committed to a total, sold-out obedience to God. Just in my lifetime, I'm 66, and I can go back to when I was a teenager and, 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 and so many congregations that I knew 
faithful congregations. Now, today, 2023, several of those congregations have instrumental music. Several of those congregations have women in leadership roles as elders and, and preachers. In fact, several of those congregations are not even calling themselves a biblical name. They have dropped the name Church of Christ. Today, churches, it seems like, are more concerned about an intoxicating emotional experience rather than a true commitment to God's commands. What has happened? What's happened in our world? Here at 70 West, we are committed to obeying God no matter what. We will obey God no matter what. Let's look at again at a passage that is often misunderstood and misapplied. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's God's grace. He doesn't owe us. We don't merit it. It's God's grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Obedient faith, faith that obeys, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The seven people that I studied with are seven people that are very, very involved in their faith, in their religion. I mean, they spend a lot of hours doing things that are church-connected. If you want to talk about works, they got a lot of works. Where they fail is in obedience. All seven, in some way or another, admitted that what they're doing is not sanctioned by the Bible not authorized by God, and still, they don't want to change. If you go to a hospital, and this has been the case with me several times, I have been in the room when someone has died, when a church member has died. And when it happens, you know, there's always, you know, Nurses that rush in, they start testing, they start, you know, looking. They're looking for a pulse, they're checking the eyes, they are looking around. And then finally, finally, that person is going to be declared dead. Why is that person declared dead? Because they show no sign of true life. Even though these seven people that I studied with are very religious and very involved in their religion, they are spiritually dead because they are not obeying God's Word. Why, Why won't they change? Because I, I really grew to love these people. I, I really grew a connection with these people. And 
they won't change because they've got friends there, they've got family there in that religion, in that church. And they're putting their friends, their religion, and sometimes their involvement in that church above obedience. And when, when that happens, I think of King Saul and what he did. God expects obedience. Myth and misconception number six. Churches of Christ treat women as second-class citizens. Two of the seven, who are women, made this accusation. They say, hey, we know that for a fact. That's not a fact. Let's look at a misunderstood passage. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you who have baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying God loves his daughters just as much as he loves his sons. I have two of my granddaughters here. And God loves His daughters just as much as He loves His sons. It's the same salvation for all. But we do have different roles as we looked at previously in this series. We have different roles. We have a different role in the family. The husband, the wife have a different role. The dad, the mom. And we have a different role here in the church. Leadership in the church has been given to man. We are expected to be leaders in God's church. Now, does that mean that women don't count? No, that's not the case at all. Women do count. In fact, if you want to talk about the work of the church, you know, but the majority of the actual work is done by women. We realize that. But the leadership roles, that is for men. Myth and misconception number seven. Churches of Christ are just another denomination. I told them, no, we're not. We're not just another denomination. We are trying to be something Different. Now, we live in a world that divides Christianity into three categories. You know, you fill out those forms, you're asked to mark your religion. What are your options? You can mark it Catholic, you can mark it Protestant, or you can mark it Orthodox. Now, if you mark it Protestant and you have someone who's there interviewing you, they may ask you, well, what denomination? Well, we in the church, we like to think of a fourth dimension. Not Catholic, not Protestant, not Orthodox. We are New Testament Christians. We are practicing, trying to practice to the very best of our ability, New Testament Christianity. We don't want to be any more. We don't want to be any less. 
we want to be as close to that first century church as we possibly can. Because that church was led by the apostles. That church was being, being directed by inspired men we call apostles. That church was what God intended. Now, denominations. Denominations, unfortunately, did start creeping out and start. We can kind of put their root back in first century. First century, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am a Paul. I'm a Paulite. I'm following Paul. Or I am a Paulus. I'm an Apollosite. I'm following Apollos. Or I am of Cephas. I'm a Cephite. Or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, people were dividing up even back then. Now, denominations did, actually, did not actually start until much, much, much later. But we see the roots. We see the beginning roots of attitudes that would lead to denominations. You see, when we break away from the New Testament, the people who were saying, I follow Paul, they weren't following Jesus. The people who were saying, I follow Cephas, were not following Jesus. The people who said, I'm following... You see, when you follow someone other than Jesus, you eventually break away from his New Testament pattern. And that is a denomination. Jesus didn't build many denominations. He built his church. Matthew 16, verse 18. He built his church. And we have the blueprint of that church. That blueprint is there in the New Testament. Tonight, all we're asking you to do is do exactly what those New Testament Christians did. We're asking you to believe. We're asking you to repent. We're asking you to confess. And we're asking you to be baptized. Will you do that? Now, that puts you into Christ. You become a New Testament Christian. You're not a denominational Christian. You are a New Testament Christian. You're following the same pattern that they did in the book of Acts. Now, as a Christian, do you need to seek forgiveness? He will forgive. Isn't that wonderful? 1 John 1, 9. The church stands ready to pray with you and for you. James 5, 16. If you have any need to respond, will you please do so as we stand and sing for you. Why keep Jesus with